Jesus, and then I put a comma. Some grammarians might critique me. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but like from third to sixth grade, I really started stopped caring in English class. And there's a void in my education, and a lot of it deals with basic structure of grammar. And so I don't know whether I should have put a comma or not, but um, I made the emphasis just because we hear Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, and like a lot of people think Jesus Christ, Christ was his last name, but it's actually the rendering of the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiah. Uh, I'm going to screw it up. I'm not going to try it in Hebrew, but most, Messiah is how we say it in English. And that's a word that has a connotation of priest, king, like this sovereign ruler all wrapped up into it. So when we hear Christ, um, it's what we derive from the Greek of Christos. Um, so really, like when we hear it, a famous commentator, um, N.T. Wright, will say, Jesus the King. So we're going to begin tonight with prayer. Um, and then story time with Blake. I want to read to you from Return of the King, um, one of J.R. Tolkien's famous works, um, to lead us into this evening. So if you join me, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds, guide our beings to encounter the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to these words of Psalm 45. My heart overflows with noble words. To the king I must speak the song I have made. My tongue is nimble as the pen of a scribe. You are the fairest of the children of men, and graciousness is poured out upon your lips. Because God has blessed you forevermore. O mighty one, gird your sword upon your thigh. In splendor and state, ride on in triumph. For the cause of truth and goodness and right. Take aim with your bow in your dread right hand. Your arrows are sharp. Peoples fall beneath you. The foes of the king fall down and lose heart. Your throne, O God, shall endure forever. A scepter of justice is the scepter of your kingdom. Your love is for justice, your hatred for evil. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above other kings. Your robes are fragrant with aloes and myrrh. From the ivory palace you are greeted with music. The daughters of kings are among your loved ones. On your right stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give ear to my words. Forget your own people in your father's house. So will the king desire your beauty. He is your lord. Pay homage to him. And the people of Tyre shall come with gifts. The riches of the people shall seek your favor. The daughter of the king is clothed with, clothed with splendor, her robes embroidered with pearls set in gold. She is led to the king with her maiden companions. They are escorted amid gladness and joy. They pass within the palace of the king. Son shall be yours in place of your fathers. You will make them princes over all the earth. May this song make your name forever remembered. May the peoples praise you from age to age. When you took on flesh, Lord Jesus, you made a marriage of mankind with God. Help us to be faithful to your word and endure our exile bravely. 
until we are called to the heavenly marriage feast. We ask this all in your name. Amen. So Psalm 45 has underneath here the marriage of a king. Um, we'll talk about it here in a little bit, but I hope you've kind of already seen overtones of where this evening might go. Uh, like I said, I want to begin with story time with Blake. Um, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. I don't know if anyone else is also a big Lord of the Rings fan. Um, it regained its popularity in the mid or early to mid 2000s when Peter Jackson reproduced the trilogy on the big screen. Um, but J.R. Tolkien was an English author. He was Catholic. Um, his faith deeply influenced his work. He doesn't write so much as like a C.S. Lewis, if you've heard his name, where it's direct allegory. Um, Tolkien rather let his faith and his worldview um, imbue his literature with dip, deep meaning and richness. So he really avoided saying there's a one-to-one -one in a lot of these situations. But in this scene, um, if you know Return of the King, it's the last movie. It's right after the Battle of Pelennor Field. So if you've seen the movies, it's with the giant elephants, and they're on the field, and there's the Witch King, and um, Gondor, this kingdom of man, has achieved the victory, but there have been many people broken, wounded, and are at the point of dying. And... The victory is won, but it doesn't seem like the war is going to be won. People are still in despair. So then comes a king to heal the peoples. And that's where we enter the story. Then Gandalf said, Let us not stay at the door. For the time is urgent. Let us enter. For it is only in the coming of Aragorn that any hope remains. For the sick that lie in the house. Thus spoke Irith, wise woman of Gondor. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Then Aragorn entered first, and the others followed. As they went toward the rooms where the sick were tended, Gandalf told of the deeds of Eowyn and Meridoc, for he said, Long have I stood by them. At first they spoke much in their dreaming, before they sank into the deadly darkness. Also it is given to me to see many things far off. Aragorn went first to Faramir, and then to the Lady Erwin, and last to Mary. When he had looked on their faces of the sick, and seen their hurts, he sighed. Here I must put forth all such power and skill as is given to me, he said. And Ermer, seeing that he was both sorrowful and weary, said, First you must rest, surely, and at least eat a little. But Aragorn answered, Nay, for these three, and most soon for Faramir, time is running out. All speed is needed. Then he called to Irith, and he said, You have store in this house of the herbs of healing? Yes, Lord, she answered but not enough, I reckon, for all that we will need. 
I am sure I do not know where we shall find more. For all the things are amiss in these dreadful days, with the fire and burnings and the lads that run errands so few, and all the roads blocked. Why it is days out of count since ever a carrier came from the market. But we do our best in this house with what we have, and I am sure your lordship will know. I will judge that when I see, said Aragorn. One thing also is short, time for speech. Have you Athelas? I do not know, I'm sure, Lord, she answered, at least not by that name. I will go and ask the herb master. He knows all the old names. It is also called King's Foil, said Aragorn, and maybe you know it by that name. For so the country folk called it in these later days. Oh, that, said Irith. Well, if your lordship had named it at first, I could have told you. No, we have none of it, I am sure. Why, I have never heard that had any great virtue, and indeed I have often said to my sisters, when we came upon it growing in the woods, Kingsfoil, I said, tis a strange name, and I wonder why it is called so, for if I were a king, I would have made, I would have plants more bright in my garden. Still it smells sweet when bruised, does it not? If sweet is the right word, wholesome maybe is nearer. Wholesome verily, said Aragorn. And now, dame, if you love the Lord Faramir, run as quick as your tongue and get me king's foil if there is a leaf in the city. When Irith was gone, Aragorn bade the other women to make water hot. Then he took Faramir's hands in his and laid the other hand upon the sick man's brow, who was drenched with sweat. But Faramir did not move or make any signs and seemed hardly to breathe. Thereupon the herbmaster entered. Your lord asked for Kingsfoil, as the rustics name it, he said, or Athelas in the noble tongue. I do so, said Aragorn, so long as you have some. Your pardon, lord, said the man. I see you are a lore master, not merely a captain of war, but alas, sir, we do not keep this thing in the house of healing where only the gravely hurt or sick are tended, for it has no virtue that we know of, save perhaps to sweeten a fouled air, or to drive away some passing heaviness. Unless, of course, you give heed to the rhymes of old days, which women such as our good Irith still speak with, still repeat without understanding. When the black breath blows, and death's shadow grows, and all lights pass, Come, Athelas, come, Athelas, life to the dying in the king's hand lying. Now Aragorn knelt beside Faramir and held a hand upon his brow, and those that watched felt with some great struggle was going on. For Aragorn's face grew gray with weariness, and ever and anon he called the name of Faramir, but each time more faintly to the hearing as if Aragorn himself was removed from them and walked afar in some dark vale, calling for one that was lost. At last Burgil came running in, and he bore six leaves and a cloth. It is king's foil, sir, he said, but not fresh, I, fresh, I fear. It must have been cold two weeks ago at the least. I hope it will serve, sir. Then looking at Faramir, he burst into tears. But Aragorn smiled, 
it will serve, he said. The worst is now over. Stay and be comforted. Then taking two leaves, he laid them on his hands and breathed on them. And then he crushed them, and straightway a living freshness filled the room, as if the air itself awoke and tingled, sparkling with joy. And then he cast the leaves into bowls of steaming water that were brought to him, that once all hearts were lightened. For the fragrance came to each, was like a memory of dewy mornings of an unshadowed sun, in some land of which the fair world in spring itself but a fleeting memory. But Aragorn stood up as one refreshed, and his eyes smiled as he held a bowl before Faramir's dreaming face. Suddenly Faramir stirred, and he opened his eyes, and he looked on Aragorn, who bent over him, and the light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes, and he spoke softly. My lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? Walk no more in the shadows, but awake, said Aragorn. You are weary. Rest a while and take food, and be ready when I return. I will, lord, said Faramir. Who would lie idle when the king has returned? Farewell then for a while, said Aragorn. I must go to the others who need me. He left the chamber with Gandalf and the others. But all those that remained behind were unable to contain their joy. As he followed Gandalf and shut the door, Pippin heard Irith exclaim, King, did you hear that? What did I say? The hands of a healer, I said. And soon the word had gone out from the house that the king was indeed come among them. And after the war, he brought healing, and the news ran through the city. So if you know Lord of the Rings, Aragorn's kind of angsty. But when you read the books, you see a man of great virtue. And... Not only this stately figure as a king, but you find a man of great compassion. And if any figure in all of Lord of the Rings represents Jesus, it is Aragorn, the king who returns to his people. I hope you can pick up those imagery from this scene as well as I've done it just enough to read it. Uh, I find that passage, especially the first time I ever um, read it, deeply stirring and moving as I pictured uh, just what this means for our lives of faith. Because Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't come for those who are well, but he came for those who are sick. And I can say myself, kind of like St. Paul, chief of sinners am I, and I need a savior. And if we look, I think in all of our hearts, we can say, we need someone to bring us this deep healing. So if we want to turn to uh, our outline, got a great image there of Christ the healer, healing the sick. Uh, and just to recap where we've been, last time the great story um, we heard about David, who was promised by God an offspring who would rule forever. I um, mean, his line would not end if they were faithful. Uh, 
And he had a son, Solomon, who erected and dedicated the temple and ruled over the height of the kingdom of Israel. You heard Solomon's story. We know that the kingdom of Israel split in two there in 0.2. The kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah. There were kings. Some were good. Some were bad. And others were downright wicked during this time of history. And the failure of all to uphold the kingdom and the covenant caused the people in the land to be captured and enslaved by foreign nations. Eventually, though, there is an empire that rose that was respectful to people's homelands. Um, and by the faithfulness of the people in exile, the Persians came to know of God the Most High. And King Cyrus sent them back, uh, especially the southern kingdom, to reestablish Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. It was during this exile that the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel gave renewed hope of a definitive covenant where God would set things right in the world. We heard in our opening prayer and psalm about this oil of gladness and in our story of Aragorn uses some herb, athelas or king's foil to bring healing. Uh, and I just wanted to talk kind of briefly about what's the meaning of oil. So we use oil for a lot of things, but if we look throughout all of Scripture, we're going to see that oil has extreme significance. Uh, so when we hear the oil of gladness, um, so it doesn't necessarily say oil of salvation there on the top of page two, um, but we can draw these direct connections um, with what we've heard so far tonight. So, what are some general things we use oil for today? Cooking. What else? What? Car oil. Lubricate. What did you say, Jeremy? Cleaner. Gasoline. Anyone have a deck? A wood deck? Yeah. Sealing things, protecting them, making them waterproof, keeping the goodness of what's contained safe, protecting the bad out. So uh, there in the bullets, we kind of have, if you have the things we use oil for in mind, you can kind of see why we can draw some imagery from the use of oil in scripture. It's a sign of abundance and joy. We have directly there the oil of gladness or in Psalm 23, which we heard a few weeks ago, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So it's a sign of abundance, but even that with cooking, as John said, the fragrance, the ability to cook with oil, it's plentiful, so it brings joy to the heart with a good meal cooked in oil. Um, it cleanses, so think Johnson Johnson baby oil. Maybe that's not a thing of the past anymore, but like after a baby was bathed, they would oil them up or before. Um, and Father Worth even said, as a cleaner. No, that's okay. Uh, it limbers, so think Arnold Schwarzenegger out on Muscle Beach or any other bodybuilders, have you ever seen them oil their skin? 
and they go out and they flex their muscles or uh, it was ancient practice in the wrestling times of the original Olympics that they would oil their skin up and it would prevent them from being captured by their opponent. It'd be limber. Um, it's a sign of healing. So uh, like burn salve is an oil-based product. Anyone ever used burn salve before? So uh, we probably have different products nowadays. But back in the day, burn salve was really, really important. It's an oil-based product. That word salve shares the same root word of salvation. So you would put burn salve on your burn to heal it, to protect it. Uh, so oil's been used in our lives from the beginning to be a sign of healing. But then it makes radiant with beauty, health, and strength. So oil or olay we know of today is the beauty product. Like their original product was oil of olay. And it was one of the first beauty care products to keep the skin fresh and vibrant. Um, so it's oil is not just, you know, like has a functional use. When we hear oil in sacred scripture, as well as we should think, um, when we encounter people using oil in the Bible, that something is taking place here more than just like this practical use of oil. So in the middle of page two, I probably won't read all the scriptures. Um, I just put in there for your perusal. I've already talked a lot today, um, but we're going to, I'll draw your attention to them and say, hey, take a look real quick. Um, I want to lay just the figures and foundations from the beginning of Jesus as his title, divine physician, one who comes to heal. So at the beginning of the fall, God actually created a remedy in our fallen humanity because we learned that we can't no longer be self-reliant. We have to surrender to God. And there is that promise that we see there, thorns and thistles shall it bear for you. The earth shall eat of the grass of the field. You got to work hard in order to get your bread. It's no longer going to come easy. And ultimately, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But in that mortality, man also recognizes his place in the world as creature instead of the creator. So there's going to be suffering. But in this suffering, God is there with us. Because there at the bottom of page 2 and 2.2, God actually, in the great story of the Exodus with Moses, he identifies himself as the healer of man. So in the last line there of that passage, I will not afflict you with any of the diseases which I afflicted the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. I, the Lord, am your healer. I've come to reestablish you and your place in the world. And if you remember back from the great story, uh, were the Israelites really, really good at following God's command when they were wandering in the desert? We had to categorize their demeanor and their behavior 
we might say it was one of uh, obstinate compliance, maybe willful refusal <laughs> of some aspects, grumbling. So they were being purified. Um, and there was a case in the book of Numbers, maybe you've encountered this story, where they were grumbling against God, and God sent seraph serpents into the camp, and they bit people, and when people were bitten by the snake, they died. They realized, oh, shoot, we screwed up again. Moses, please go to God and say, we're sorry. Will you fix this? And God does. And he tells Moses to put a bronze serpent on a staff. And when people look at that serpent on the staff, they are healed from their bites. Anyone know, like the coat of arms for a doctor, what it is? What is it? Uh-huh. Where did we get that sign? We got that from right here. It's the same story. Um, so from the beginning of uh, Christianity, really, we begin to associate doctors with that symbol. Um, we saw in this, we read back, we saw, oh, look, God is doing healing here. And so they've associated that story. But then there on the top of page three, um, you see there probably the, one of the most famous Bible verses as at the end of that little paragraph in John three fourteen to 16. But the preceding verses draw our attention back to this story in Numbers. And just as this is Jesus speaking, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. Two point four there. Don't have the text, but why I included that? Naaman just um, in the second book of Kings. He's a foreigner, and he comes to the king of Israel, and he says, "Hey, one of my servants said you can be healed by the God of Israel. So he put me in touch with him, and the king of Israel is like, who do you think I am? I don't. And he was not a very good king. So then." Um, Elijah, no, sorry, Elisha uh, actually intercepted Naaman and told, gave him instructions, go wash in the river Jordan and you'll be healed of your leprosy. And he does. He, at first he's like, aren't the rivers of my hometown any better than the river of Jordan? This is just a dirty river looking at it. And um, he's reminded Remember what the young lady said, as well as remember the stories of what this God has done. Have some trust in the words of this man of God. And so he goes and wash, and he actually is healed. And then he says, no longer will I worship any other gods. I'm only going to worship the God of Israel. And I include this because it shows that there's still this universal nature that's being built upon. Even the people that are not in God's own kingdom, his covenant yet, are being brought for healing. So God's at work in the midst of that. And then 
In 2.5, we have just one of the accounts of the suffering servant songs in the book of Isaiah, where there's the prophet, and he's speaking of some servant who's going to help set Israel right with God. Who would believe what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a sapling before him like a shoot from the parched earth. He had no majestic bearing to catch our eye and no beauty to draw us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, knowing pain, like one whom you had turned your face, spurned and we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our sins crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds, you're healed. We were healed. So we have this promise of this physician, this suffering servant who's going to come and heal his people. Store this one away, just because in a few pages it'll be important to remember. And then also during this time of exile, we heard that there's going to be a definitive covenant. God's going to come and set things right. Um, and so we have that captured in that 2.6 at the bottom of page 3. I will put my spirit within you on the last line and make you live by my statutes, careful to observe my decrees. I will give you new hearts and place a new spirit within you, taking your bodies, taking from your bodies your stony hearts and giving you natural hearts. So God is going to come and set the human heart right. And in the book of Isaiah, we have not only this understanding of a suffering servant, but of the king that will come and dwell with his people. So in Isaiah 61, there's the prophecy, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and release to the prisoners to announce a year of favor from the Lord and a day of vindication by our God, to comfort all who mourn, to place on those who mourn in Zion a diadem instead of ashes, to give them oil of gladness instead of mourning, glorious mantle instead of a faint spirit. And what's being spoken of is this figure that's going to be anointed with the Spirit of the Lord to do just exactly what we've been talking about, set things right. And I want to pause real quick here and have you all use the Bibles at your table. Um, I want you all to maybe grab a Bible, Kelly and Armando, um, or there's more over here if everyone wants their own copy. You all work on Matthew 11. Just count how many times up through Matthew 1 to 11, we have references of healing in that section. Back table, 
and this table, go ahead and count from Luke 1 to 7. And then you all, uh, if you want to work together, and count Mark 1 to 6. So I might call our attention back. Um, not that I want to rush our Matthew group. They have a little bit more to chew off. But there's a reason why I picked these points. Um, you have a number? Jeremy, you, I heard you're, there's a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you would say, like, generally in these 11 chapters, there's a good amount of references. Okay. Our groups from Luke. I'd say really quickly clarify that. There's at least in those first chapters, parables of the lost man. Yeah. Okay, good. Nine. Okay. Good. Mark's a little shorter. Um, <laughs> so if you want to flip over to page five, we'll find out why we picked these definitive. But we can at least say during these segments, there's a good emphasis, good um, recurring encounters of Jesus healing people. So the words that we just left with from sacred scripture from Isaiah 61 should be ringing in our ears as we read Luke 4, 16 and 19. He, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had grown up and went according to his custom into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read and was handed a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the passage where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He sent me, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. The verses that I omitted here, but we'll just kind of paraphrase, are today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is me and my mission, is what Jesus says. But the reason why we made this distinction is because in all those segments, that's before John the Baptist had died. And there's an account here in Matthew 11 where John's in prison, Jesus' cousin, and he sends his messengers to Jesus and they say, are you the one or are we to look for another? And this is what Jesus says there in Matthew 11. When John heard in prison the works of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to him with the question, Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Jesus said to them in reply, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. 
The death here, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. So when Jesus sends back these messengers, what he points to is, look at the signs of the messianic times coming forth. God's coming to set things right in the world. The proof should be visible by fruits here. And it's kind of another mic drop moment, or at least that's how I've read it at times too. Where it's like, look, what you've been waiting for is here. Open your eyes. So we've drawn these parallels. There were prophecies. Jesus directly refers to them when he announces his mission. And then he has the signs to back it up for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. In 2.8 there at the bottom, or in the middle of page 5, we've already encountered this verse. If you remember back when we studied the kerygma, this concept of Jesus sending out his followers with the message, come follow after me, organize your life around me, repent, metanoia, come follow me this way. But I just want to relook at this. He, Jesus, went around to the villages in the vicinity teaching. He summoned the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So they went off and they preached the same message, repentance. They drove out many demons and then they anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. So Jesus sends them out with a means to bring his healing perpetuated in the works of the apostles. He institutes this ministry of anointing. And then in 2.9, as we read later on in the Gospels, as well as the sequel, so the Acts of the Apostle, Luke wrote it, Gospel of Luke writer, and it really should be read as the Acts of our Lord Jesus, part two instead of just necessarily the Acts of the Apostles, because it's the continuation. And as you read the Acts of the Apostles, with that in mind, you actually begin to see it. That it's Jesus working in the Apostles. It's them who is carrying his presence into the world through this ministry of anointing, through this power that he has given them. And so we just have an account there in Acts 5, and you can see over there of other times there's healing. But it's when the Holy Spirit comes upon them they have this new vibrancy. They have this new life dwelling within them that allows them to go forth with this power. And as in Acts 4, um, they pray. The room shakes as it's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter's actually even praying, like, let us be your hands and feet into the world to bring healing that's so desperately needed. So then those who follow the apostles, the apostles themselves in their ministry, and then those that um, they entrust, they build, they form, they ordain, as well as the other disciples participate in a ministry of reconciliation, forgiveness, and then in healing. We hear St. Paul say this in his second letter to the Corinthians. So whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And all this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Namely, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, as if God was appealing through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And James, a fellow apostle and minister of reconciliation and forgiveness, writes this letter to instruct the church. Is anyone among you sick? He should summon the presbyters of the church, and they should pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Presbyters is our word priest. It's the English English rendering of the word presbyters. And so we see that there's this physical anointing that James, instructed by Jesus, instructs those underneath him that he has formed to actually perform some rite of healing, some act of healing through anointing of oil and of prayers. Do we see the progression here? Even in the midst of suffering, God's finding a remedy through that suffering. He's the one who identifies himself as man's healer. He provides remedies for our brokenness. It's not just for his chosen people of the covenant at the beginning. He brings other people into this healing. Ultimately, there's an identified servant who's going to bring about this healing. There's a promise that it's going to be for all people in a new way. Then comes Jesus onto the scene who claims the identity of this healer. And then Jesus doesn't just stop with himself. He entrusts other men to carry on this work with him. He entrusts the faithful to be his presence in the world. And that's the reality that we live in now. There's a ministry of reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing. So there, back on the page six, Florence, I guess you had a question. No, okay, not anymore. Um, so top of page six there in 3.0, the weakness of our mortal state with deathless might invigorate. That line comes from um, a traditional chant, Vine Creator Spiritus. It's a prayer and a song to the Holy Spirit. But it's to focus this in on how God wants to heal us. So there's redemption and suffering. From the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1501, illness can lead to anguish, self-absorption, sometimes even despair and revolt against God. It can make a person more mature, helping him discern in his life what is not essential so that he can turn towards that which is. Very often, illness provokes a search for God and a return to him. Jesus Christ, the divine physician, gives us a material way to encounter his healing presence poured out in love and mercy that makes us recognize our need for medicine and remedies which we do not possess, and healing and suffering, and that suffering is not without meaning because we can look to the cross and see the instrument that brings us healing. 
you've ever been around someone who's been in immense pain, that reality of it can either make someone the most base and animalistic or the most holy and virtuous because that pain is a sword that pierces the heart. What should bring us hope? It's also a mystery. Like, why do I have to go through this suffering, Lord? Maybe you've encountered someone that's asked that question before. You've asked it yourself. Like, why do I have to go through this? But it is true that in some of our darkest moments, we find the remedies of exactly what's needed for us. And then in 3.2 there, we actually see, because God has a greater picture in mind, he could make us well. He could give us the pill to make my knee not hurt, to make my hamstring healthy, to fix whatever that ails us. But when we see Jesus heal the paralytic man, um, we see that his mission is something deeper than just physical healing. It's to heal our interior disorder. So Jesus entered a boat, made the cross, and came to his own town. And people brought to him a paralytic laying on a stretcher. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Courage, child, your sins are forgiven. At that, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Jesus knew what they were thinking and said, Why do you harbor evil thoughts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your stretcher, and go home. He rose and went home. And the crowd saw this, and they were struck with awe, and glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. So this ministry of reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing, Jesus' ultimate purpose is to bring our own interior healing, to heal us from sin to set that right definitively, to provide for us a way to be saved from it, to be brought back to relationship with God the Father. So he does care about our physical healings, but his purpose is to come to heal the human heart and to make it new in his sacred heart, which poured out blood and water. If you want to turn to page 7, I've made allusions to the meaning of oil, to a physical means, kind of drawing our attention to when God uses physical means. So I just want to introduce the concepts of grace and the sacraments. Talk about them more fuller, but this is where we're going to make the Catholic leap tonight. I think all of us who have come from a Christian background can say, yeah, I believe Jesus comes to heal. But I want to make the Catholic leap with you all to say Jesus comes to heal us. And he does heal it, as we see numerous times in the gospel, through words, through faith. But he also gives us physical means in order for us to know that we have been healed. Of our interior sickness that needs to be healed, but then also um, at times through our physical wounds. So what is grace? The Catechism of the Catholic Church just describes grace as favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God's adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. And then it continues on in the next paragraph. 
grace is a participation in the life of God. It introduces us into the intimacy of Trinitarian life. So if you've heard grace before, it's a participation and share in God's life. It's a gift to us, freely given in order to restore us back to himself. 4.2 there, the church, we distinct, uh, distinguish different categories of grace. So we hear grace, but it can be further defined. There's sanctifying grace, and that heals our soul and restores us to God and his divine life in us. So this is what's given in baptism, and it makes us new. As St. Paul said there in his letter to the Second Corinthians, so whoever in Christ is a new creation or renewed is probably a better way to put it. I'm not that St. Paul's wrong, but in this understanding, when we receive sanctifying grace, the brokenness is made whole again. If I would have thought about it, I would have put it, it's like a mirror. At the fall, we had a mirror and we had a perfect um, before that, we had a, an image, when we look back in the mirror, that reflected the image and likeness of God. At the fall, we punched the mirror. It's not broken completely, but there's cracks in the glass. So what we reflect back to the world is an image that's distorted of God because we know that we have a tendency to sin. But with sanctifying grace, what the church is saying, and this gift from God, this sharing in his life, it's the glue that makes our mirror whole if some pieces have fallen that binds it back together so that we have this image and likeness of God renewed in us. And then we participate with the life of grace, sanctifying grace. And it's actually the fire. So if you've ever smelted glass before, the only way to make glass whole again is to melt it and then repour it. But this isn't a repouring, a throwing out. It's the heat and the fire that actually just glues those pieces back together. So the more that you live a life of sanctifying grace, the more you participate with the will of God, the way, the more that you give up self-reliance and rely on surrender in him, you actually get the means he gives it to you to remake that mirror so that it's a perfect image and likeness of God. And then God gives us... In 4.2, letter B, actual grace, and that's the ability and capacity to act on those nudgings that he gives us, those divine nudgings. So I'm going to pause real quick here. This is like brief introduction. It's maybe a lot to throw. Like if anyone's like, I don't know exactly what you're talking about. I don't agree with that. Um, but I wanted to lead us into 4.3 because you've probably heard of them before, the sacraments. And those are the vehicles that give us grace. Anyone got any questions on grace? So my proposal is, this is the way that Jesus wants to heal us. This is what it is. You can see how he's implementing it just in this passage of the scripture that we looked at. And he wants to give it to us through the sacraments. And the sacrament there in 4.3 in the middle of page 7 is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give us grace. So they're 
there in the next paragraph, conduits or vehicles of sanctifying grace, like the tubing that holds the wire through which electricity flow. So through the channels that which we receive this grace and the means by which the gift of sanctifying grace gets from God into us. So think baptism. We have a washing that takes place on a natural level. You ever seen a baptism? Somebody's going into water, they're getting clean. But what happens, the sanctifying grace that's given is they're renewed in their soul. Original sin is washed away. They're made whole again. And the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, they're anointed with oil. Included in that is a rite for confession. So there's a confession of sin, of absolution, of forgiving of sins. But this anointing, which St. James alludes to, brings this interior healing. Sometimes it brings physical healing. In the Eucharist that we heard with Moses, we're nourished by physical bread that's changed into the body and blood of Christ who nourishes us body and soul to be conformed to him. So we can go through the rest of the sacraments. We at least want to propose this. Say, do you see it? This is the way that Jesus is working. He wants to give a physical means for us because we're not spiritual beings alone or body and soul. So he wants to reach to us in a way that's able to be received and communicated to us. And it's not a stretch because they're on the bottom of 7. 4.4 times Jesus used physical touch or matter to heal. It's actually primarily just a quick sketch. That's the main way that Jesus healed people. He touched them. He used spittle or clay in order to heal them. Sometimes it was by word of command, like the paralytic, rise, get up, and walk. But he used physical means to heal people because he knows we're physical, we're physical beings. We need to have the sense of touch. We need to have hearing that says you're forgiven. We need to be able to taste again. So I counted 21 times there at the bottom. You can look at that reference from the catechism, but I basically just said the same thing. He wants to heal us and touch us in the sacraments. So it seemed about two-thirds, one-half to two-thirds of the time, Jesus used physical touch to heal people in the Gospels. So among the parish staff, um, this is a favorite scripture verse. I've heard it alluded to numerous times, um, which for my brothers and sisters that I get to work with speaks to the recognition of their need for the divine physician to come to them. So I want to just leave tonight with this passage for you. And then that question in the middle, as I've proposed the church wants to give physical healing to you, interior healing, but through physical means in the church. And it's not just something that they've created, something that Jesus established for us to reach us, to touch out to us today. 
to have an assurance of my body to say I have been healed. Father Worth, after I get done reading, can you give us a blessing? And then we will have questions if anyone has questions. But I at least want to kind of keep the spiritual moment of this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem at the Sheep Gate, a pool called in Hebrew Bethesda, with five porticos. And these lay a large number of ill, blind, lame, and crippled. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had been ill for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am on the way, someone else gets down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your mat, and walk. Immediately, the man became well, took up his mat, and walked. So we leave tonight, just that question. In your walk with Jesus, do you want to be well? He's asking you. Do you want to be well? Do you want me to bring you my healing? Will you surrender? In your walk with Jesus, do you want to be well? He's asking you. Do you want to be well? Do you want me to bring you my healing? Will you surrender? Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.